With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. For over 10 years, VOC Nation has taken listeners behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Our hosts are not only experts on the business, but have lived in the business. Subscribe and hear weekly podcasts from hosts like legendary pro wrestling journalist Bill Apter, former Impact Wrestling star Wes Briscoe, former WWE and AWA broadcaster Ken Resnick, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, former WCW star The Maestro, NWA legend The Raging Bull Manny Fernandez, and much more. VOC Nation programming is free on most major podcasting apps, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Radio.com. And video podcast and bonus content is available on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. What are you waiting for? Head to VOCNation.com and dig into the most comprehensive podcast network built for pro wrestling fans. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at VOC Nation Wrestling Network and follow us on Twitter at VOC Nation. My name is C.T. McManus, and for the next two hours, it is my job to get your mind off the craziness of the world out there, get it refocused in on some good old-fashioned rock and roll. Guys, we have an amazing show for you this evening. We got the front man and the lead singer himself of Junkyard, David Roach. We'll also be joined by Jonathan Mover, who has been a drummer for countless bands. Uh, he currently tours with Sidewalk, not currently because no one's currently touring, but before COVID, he was currently touring with uh, Saigon Kick, and we'll be topping the show with last night's villain, guys. Really excited to get started, and I believe we have David on the line with us. David, are you with us? Amazingly, yeah. Hey, Amazing. man. Thanks so much for your time, man. Sure, man. No problem. 
So uh, I wanted to ask you a question right out the bat. Uh, I wanted to – it's something that you had said three years ago. You stated that staying hungry is what ju- uh, what gives Junkyard its edge. Uh, how do you guys feel? Do you still feel that way, and how hungry are you guys now going through this COVID situation? Did I say that out loud, or I just thought I thought it? <laughs> um, well, I mean, that's true for me, and, you know, I mean, I'm always on the uh, – brink of fiscal disaster so <laughs> I'm, I'm usually hungry uh, yeah you know i mean you draw inspire. you know i try to write about the stuff that i can identify with and dory you know? now have you guys had the chance during this whole mess to to see each other to talk to each other to like get anything done well the yeah we have a uh like a band thread you know, we message each other pretty much every day, like a bunch of high school girls almost. But, um, <laughs> uh, we're, um, you know, we correspond mostly by the internet or whatever. Um, I'm actually going down to LA tomorrow, though, to um, record some songs and uh, write and record with Tim. He's got a studio there. So we're, we're even though we're apart, we're, uh, the ball's rolling. Man, you know, and where? You know, where are you located so, now, Dave? Um, I'm about 90 minutes up the coast from uh, L.A., a little okay. town called Carpinteria, just below uh, Santa Barbara, that area. Nice. Uh, I, I wanted yeah, to beautiful. ask you what – go ahead, Dave. Sorry. No, I just said uh, it's nice, nice part of the world. Now, what would you say is the difference between Junkyard in 89 and now? How would you say the band's changed? How would you say you've changed since the beginning of all this? Sadly, there hadn't been a lot of emotional growth since then. But, um, uh, you know, a little bit older, I mean, a lot older, a little bit wiser. Uh, I think it comes more naturally to us now. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's just like doing anything for 30 years, whether you're a plumber or a musician, over time you get you know, really comfortable with it. And, you know, you see a broken pipe, you go, oh, I can do this. You see a song that needs a riff or a, you know, a bridge or whatever, you go, oh, I can figure this out, you know? Right. Now, I mean, now we exist in an entirely different musical climate than uh, when you guys began. Would you say the climate's gotten better or worse or just different? Uh, different, you know, I don't have a business mind, and so I can't really – speak to it on that level um it, it's a lot different you know I, mean, uh, I don't see you know there's not as much it's in a way it's easier to get attention because there's so many platforms out there but then there's so many platforms and so many people doing it that it's harder to get attention um right and so it's got its drawbacks too um and you know record companies have kind of almost been eliminated in a sense I mean, they still yeah. serve a purpose as far as distribution and stuff, but um, I, I, it's a new game out there, you know, and I, I don't have the answers really. You know, we, we've got a pretty solid fan base that we've had for a long time. Um, I don't know if it, you know, if we're benefiting from from the way things are done now or not. Now with I, mean, uh, I didn't make much money then, and I didn't make much money anymore. I mean, it's all you know, t-shirt <laughs> sales more than anything. You don't see m- money from records really. Now, Not at this uh, level, at least. 
you guys haven't had uh, an album out since 2017. Are you guys working on any new material? Hey, man, the last one took 26 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've got about – we've probably got uh, two-thirds of an album. That's nice. where we're uh, – we got a single coming out um, a couple months, I think. And um, then we're working on stuff. Uh, it, it's it's going good. So um, I don't know. The end of the year, that might be. That'd be great. No, I mean but, with um, the whole with, with the whole way things are going as far as mm-hmm. albums are concerned. Like you said, the labels are almost non-existent at this point, and the the idea behind making an album has completely changed. What what would you say is the 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 nice part about making an album. I mean, I know we're all throwbacks. We're all, I mean, I grew up in the business and it's just that there's a sentimental reason behind making an album. I wanted to see your point of view on that as far as bands that put out singles as opposed to a full album. Well, oh, it's different. Um, I mean, back then, you know, you'd, you'd buy out some time at a studio you know, nice studios and you, you know, you kind of almost live there and worked out things there. And, um, it's, it's different now you do things, but, you know, I'll send you this and you see what you can come up with and you get you back and forth like that. Um, it was, it was cool back in the day. Cause you know, it was fun hanging out in the studio and feeling like a big shot, you know? And, yeah. um, but, but there's a, you know, there's also a comfort level and, you know, being able to do it at your own pace uh, without, you know, a lot of people looking over your shoulder, um, and just you know working it out. It's it's, it's different because I'm used to um, working out songs, you know, with the whole band in the same right. room. Um, but you're getting used to you know you just got to adapt. Now, as far as albums are concerned or labels are concerned, you guys were originally signed to Geffen. And growing up, Geffen was like, for me, I, I graduated high school in 93, so I was just a little bit behind everybody else. But to mm-hmm. me, that was the coolest label. I mean, Guns N' Roses was signed to it. Anybody that seemed to be anybody in the rock world was signed to Geffen. How was it working for Geffen? They were good. It was, you know, I mean, I don't have a barometer as far as other labels, but, you know, they like you said, you know, they, they signed Guns N' Roses, they signed Nirvana, they signed, um, you know, they signed Junkyard. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, they, they you know, they had a, a reputation of, you know, kind of taking chances on bands like that and stuff. So um, I, I'd say we were in pretty good hands. Now, with the, uh, with the Sound of High Water, the last album you guys put out, compared to some of your earlier albums, I mean, that was the first album like you said in forever um right. was there anybody that came new to the scene or anybody that you could say was more of an influence to change the sound of junkyard as opposed to the old way into what you guys sound like now i don't think so i mean are you talking like sonically or um just uh, the vibe Material. Yeah, I'm talking the vibe. I'm talking like the, the the sounds a little different than what you guys were doing originally. Uh, yeah. it, it sounds like you guys really matured a lot. Well, 23 years will do that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the the sound and the music's a little different than what you guys started out doing. 
Well, I guess um, you know, obviously, it's gonna um, the, the the years are gonna put something on it that maybe it's not perceptible to us. You know, we're just kind of doing what we always did. I thought, um, you know, we do a lot of it. I mean, most of it's um, DIY. You know, um, Tim has a studio that we're able to get most of the guitar and uh, vocals on. You know, we go live for um, drums. But um, it's uh, you know, it's a different atmosphere. It's you know, but I think it's more cohesive, maybe for us. You know, when it's like me and Tim working out, you know, different aspects of the songs and stuff. You know, right. not having that pressure of you know, you know, get this done. You know, and times money and all that. You know, you know taking your own pace and. And um, and doing it the way we want, and not having again, you know, a record label or you know whatever, you know, kind of on your shoulder, like looking for a single or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, with the with the twenty three years in between the albums, and I mean, there were a couple of different lineups for Junkyard in that time. How was that time in between albums, between High Water and uh, trying to look up the last album that you guys put out. I mean, you had the shut up. We're trying to practice in 2000, but uh, right, before that, which really that weren't I mean, having die hard. Um, right. How how was that time period in between? Actually, uh, old habits came out after high water, and a lot of those like the the live album and stuff. Were, you know, there was no work to be done there. Um, gotcha. I'm sorry. Are you editing this, or am I just live and stupid? <laughs> uh, we're live, but it's all good, man. I mean, believe me. Right on. Um, so I just forgot where we were going. Oh, the time down. Um, you know, it was. I, we never. I never really thought of it. You know, I never saw us necessarily putting out another record at that point. You know, you know, we'd get a phone call to, you know, you want to go to Spain or something like that, and I'm like, hell yeah. Or, you know, and then gigs started picking up in America, and we had been writing in the in the case of a a deal, so you know we had some stuff there. But you know, at that point, it wasn't about you know let's get a deal. We got to you know get a deal with a good label and make a lot of money. You know, it's just it's it's only for the love of the game at that point. You know, right. Now, I mean, was that lucrative enough to keep you guys – or did you guys all have to kind of pick up day jobs at that point? Oh, yeah, we all have jobs. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, there were times when we were on Geffen that I was working, so you got to pay the now, rent, man. Yeah, I hear <laughs> – believe me, I hear you. Now, there's so many bands that came from that time period uh, that were unfairly labeled as hair bands just because they were playing rock and roll in that time period. Uh, Bands like Tesla, Roxy Blue, Bang Tango, other bands like that. Um, Did that hinder you guys at all? It doesn't anger. um, You know, I think it it doesn't – I mean, it doesn't anger me, but um, I think it kind of misrepresents – I don't mind hair metal even as much as um, strip rock. Right. Just because we were never part of that scene. But, I mean, you know, people like to put things in categories and, 
you know, if you want to lump it into something, then then I guess for the time and the space, you know, called hair metal, whatever. I, right. You know, it's all rock and roll to me. Now, when but, was you know, your that, uh, was a, that was a movement, I guess, at the time. And, the hair, you know, the glam, it, whatever. It, it, it seemed unfair that like a lot of bands were just getting signed because of a look or because of MTV at the time or things like that, while other better bands kind of slipped through the cracks. Did you find that to well, be the case? When you when you when you're lumped into a group like that, you know, after the moment's gone, then you then that label sticks with you. You know, oh, you there that hair metal band from the '80s. You know, whether that really represents what you are, what you were then, and what you are today, or if you ever were, you know. You're, that's kind of what you're stuck with, but you know, get mad. What do you even do? It's, you know, it's it's no. you know, it's an easy way to identify that genre. Now, before COVID hit, what was the last uh, show that you guys had done? Last gig was in February. I don't remember the date with Danko Jones in uh, Huntington Beach. Man. Seems like a decade ago. It does. Now, I mean, with everything that's been going on, um, do you guys have anything? I mean, it seems like some states are opening up, other states are closing down. Do you guys have anything upcoming? Well, we've got um, some gigs in Texas in December. Now, I'm hoping that uh, with the vaccine will out, the vaccine will out that um, it seems to be gaining momentum and uh, things could clear up uh, and open up earlier. Maybe into the summer we might start getting some offers. I'm also concerned that um, I don't know if a lot of the clubs that are on the rock circuit, the few that were left, you know, in America you know, are going to see the other side of this. Yeah. You know, I've seen venues. I'm on the East Coast, and I've seen venues close mm-hmm. to me that are closing down now because of COVID. Yeah, and the rock, the rock clubs. Yeah, it's sad. It's you. You know, I wanted to ask you that as well, as far as you being in the game as long as you've been, and with as far as COVID and everything is concerned. The the state of rock going into COVID was a little shaky as it was, a little underground. I mean, we haven't had any kind of big movement for a long time. And this past week, everybody was upset about the Eddie Van Halen Grammy thing. Um, what is your view as far as the United States is right now with the current rock scene? Well, put it this way, like in 80... 80- Six eighty-seven, when we were coming out, you know, I'd see ads for bands at certain clubs in um, L.A. From like the, you know, it's like the Drifters or the Coasters or you know some right. 50s band. And I'm like, man, those guys are thirty years old. And they're still playing, but I guess there's a little pocket of. Uh... So, you know, it's hard to think of it in those terms, but you know, we're thirty years removed from that from that scene. So, yeah. I mean, realistically, how many people are, you know, still alive or, you know, still digging it? Now, we get some young guys or, like, the, the like children of our fans that uh, get dragged along and, and dig it, you know. But, I, you know, 
I don't I don't know if rock will ever be what it was. You know, I don't want to be a, a pessimist, but you know, it's just kind of the reality of it. I think yeah. a lot might a lot of it might have to do with um, this is just my theory, but um, just you know, kids today are about instant gratification. You know, they're you know the idea of sitting down and learning an instrument. You know, if if you don't if you're not good at something in an hour, then it's on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many kids have that. You know, if, you know if rock and roll appeals to them that much, or you know, taking the time to learn a craft like drums or bass guitar. Um, you know, if they if they have the patience for it anymore. Now, as far as a singer, how do you feel about like auto tune and backing tracks and things like that? Well, I, I think it allows a lot of untalented people to sound good, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think it saved my ass a couple of times. <laughs> um, you know, it is what it is. You can't stand there and get stubborn and angry or whatever about right. um, about progress or whatever you want to call it. And um, I mean, what you're, what you're talking about, I think, is um, those bands that are just kind of formulated like the K-pop and stuff like that. Oh where yeah, it's absolutely. Like, where it's more image-driven than anything else. And if the guy can't sing, you know, that's not a problem either. Yeah, um, I, it it blows my mind when you see certain things that happen and certain accolades. Well, I'm just thinking about last week's Grammys and how certain things floated. I didn't and, see them, so I. I'm sorry, I didn't see the Grammys, and I wasn't sure what the uh, Van Halen reference was. See, I usually don't watch award shows. I I, I yeah. refuse to, but then I, I kind of <laughs> look at, like, the, the, the wrap-up, or I'll watch, like, the, the best moments of. And right. uh, Eddie got 15 seconds out of a clip, and the rest of the show had no representation of rock at all. So it, it just kind of set the stage for what we're going through right now. That sort of lends itself to your question then, you know, yeah. what, what is the future drug and roll? You, know, you give somebody a, a, a pioneer like Eddie Van Halen 15 seconds and, you know, I mean, I, you'd think a couple minute like montage or something. I mean, he changed the face of guitar playing. And, yeah. You know, mid-70s. So, I mean, there was no rock. There was no rock. Nom- I mean, what was it? There must have been a rock category or something. Yeah. There, there was a rock category, but you know, a lot of times anymore, if you ever seen the award shows, the awards earlier this evening were given to, and, and they'll do the rock categories in that, and it's. Oh, you mean they just uh, like name call them, like roll them out. And not, and no, not, well, they'll like, show you again yeah, who who won earlier before the show even went on the air. The actual presentation, right? Yeah. So it's not it doesn't validate like you know guys coming up to the podium and receiving and all that. Exactly. Yeah, it, it bypasses all that. Well, there you go. Rock is dead. So we're but, not dead. I mean, you, you said <laughs> you guys have been to Spain. You guys have been overseas. I, I hear. Uh, that a lot of places overseas are still very much happening as far as rock is concerned. Yeah. I mean, 
You know, I've, I've had this question before, and I've always said, you know, Europeans are really, you know, if they're down with somebody, they're down with them forever. Um, you know, they don't change flavors with time or whatever. But that's not really true. I mean, I can't say that that's not true with America either. Right. Um, you know, I've seen the same faces for a long time. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure either, but maybe just uh, in general, rock is um, a little more – still has uh, more popularity there than it does here. And, you know, Alice Cooper said, and I wanted your opinion on this quote. He had said, you know, rock was never meant to be popular. Rock was never meant to be in the spotlight. It was meant to kind of be underground where it is. And kind of be the dirty right. secret of the music industry is that? Do you do you agree with that? I think um, there was a time when that was certainly the case. You know, definitely in the in the early in the fifties when it was the devil's music, and it was you know, yeah, you know, it was for the kids from the wrong side of the tracks, the greasers and the you know losers, whatever. And you know, in the sixties, it became like a Kind of the symbol of protest and anti, and um, but you know, by the late sixties, seventies, it was you know mainstream and it was you know as big as it ever was. But you know, it's always had that stigma, which is good, you know. But it's kind of like you know, like the punk rock movement. Absolutely. You know, if you want to compare that to to what you know rock and roll was to the fifties, punk was to the late seventies, early eighties. You know, it was like that's not music, that's crap, and you know, the unruly teenagers. Uh, so the same shit they were saying back in the in the fifties about Elvis and shit. But you know what's funny is they they did the same thing in the seventies when it came time for di- the disco era where you had the soft rock movement with like the Eagles and things like that and maybe it's Little just maybe it's, maybe it's coming back. Which one, soft rock or, or rock and roll? <laughs> oh, rock and roll. I meant like it, it, because you you went through that that time in the seventies. Like I said, with the disco and with the soft rock, and then it took a big movement in the 80s, and then in the early 90s it moved. I'm I'm hoping maybe sometime soon there's going to be a little bit of a resurgence. Yeah, I mean, I've been hearing that for a while, and I've you know there's we've seen glimpses of it, but I don't know that you know there will ever be uh, it it will ever have the kind of Nationwide, international, like spectacular that, like say, yeah. maybe Guns N' Roses was the last time, right? You know, the last rock band to kind of take the world by storm and, and become like a household name from a bunch of you know gutter punks. Yeah, I mean, you you did have uh, I think the last band that really hit was that whole Seattle movement with Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and uh, Allison Chains, all those guys. Um, how far right. were you, you know, guys? That, that's, from... that's completely correct. That's completely correct. Uh, you know, I see Guns N' Roses, but we're talking about the spirit of rock and roll. Then, yeah. Oh yeah, is... absolutely. But, I mean, as far as hair metal people don't like to 
a lot of people are down on that era. You know, they oh yeah, they don't like to. They think um, Nirvana ruined a hard rock, but I don't know. I think in a lot of ways it kind of saved it, or you know, or you know, reframed it, and you know, gave it somewhere to go at that time. Yeah. And you know, for the longest time, I I I, I fell into that camp, and then it took me a little while to realize, you know, it, it was the the record producers, the the promoters, that were just giving untalented hair bands a, a chance to get out there and explode based on a look mm-hmm. that right. Nirvana and, kind of rebelled against and kind of brought it back to where it was. Right. And I think if you ask, you know like bands like the who or led zeppelin or something about bands like nirvana they'd say yeah that's what that's the that's evolution that's you know that's how rock and roll can um you know maintain so my last question for you david uh is if covid was to be we're finally out of covid everything's back to normal what are you looking most forward to doing well, what do you think, man? <laughs> Being out in front of people again, playing again. Do you have a favorite spot? And I, oh, mm, no, there's there's great places everywhere. Every night's a, an adventure. Yeah. So as long as you guys are back out there, is all you care about. Now I'm wondering if it, you know, if if, it, if things will ever be the same again. And, post-COVID as far as, you know, I mean, because, I mean, the big bands, they don't, you know, they're they're on a stage with a barrier and all that, but I'm, you know, we're, right. we're the kind of band that likes to be right there sweating with the crowd and, you know, right in their face, and, you know, I feed off that, so. Now, one of the things <laughs> that I could say personally how I feel is I, I think a lot of the bigger, a lot of the bigger bands and a lot of the bigger arenas one, the tickets are going to be astronomical. Mm. And two, with that, they're going to kind of be going back into some of the smaller clubs and smaller venues. And I think national acts like yourself and even some of the local guys are going to really get a resurgence from all that. Well, I think, um, I don't know, people can afford tickets now, I guess, you know, if they want to see somebody that bad. They can do right. it, but you know, I've, I I always um, first of all, I think people are going to be nuts when they're finally able to get together again. I think uh, sexual transmitted diseases are going to go up five hundred percent, and we're just going to be oh, going, yeah. yeah. So um, I think you got a point there when you know things get back to whatever's going to be normal. Yeah, those little clubs and people just like I think people got a lot of pent up. You know, party. Oh yeah. Right now. So uh, yeah, you might have something there. I can't wait to get back out. I think it's going to be like, like people getting released from prison and going ape shit. <laughs> I mean, I, the the one thing that I've seen through this whole pandemic, and I'm very happy for it, and I'm I'm sure that you guys have found yourselves there as well. It seems like creativity, as far as rock is concerned, is off the charts. Everybody's writing. Everybody's recording. And I think we have a whole new wave of new material coming. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people got a lot of time on their hands. So, 
you know, anybody with a writing block or whatever, you know, this has been a good time to tap in and, you know, yeah, yeah, I think musicians across the board have been chomping at the bit and fans no. too. You know, I totally agree, and it's just a matter of time until we get there. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I said that was the last question, but I got one more for you. We're getting ready to play Kindness to the Dead. Could you give me a little insight into that song? Trying to remember what it was. It's been a while. It's um, okay. It's kind of a, you know, never say never thing, you know, I mean, kind of, you know, I'm not going to say I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do this again because I've said that before and I've done that again. So out of kindness of the dead, I don't disrespect them by saying I'm never going to let that happen, you know, to me what happened to that guy. Um, I think that was the gist of it. So... David, thank you so much for being with us tonight, man. Have a great rest no of your problem, weekend. And, Thanks uh, for having me. appreciate it. Man, really excited to see what's coming up, man. If you say there's a new album by the end of the year, I'm really going to keep an eye out for it. Well, don't quote me on the end of the year, but definitely a single in the next couple months. And uh, and we're uh, getting real close to uh, a full album. Release time, I can't be certain, but... Um, End of the year sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, David. You have a great night. You too, man. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye.
That was Junkyard. Guys, big thank you to David Roach for being with us this evening, man. As I promised you, you know, uh, I put out on the Rock and Roll Union Facebook page that there was going to be a major concert announcement that I'm very, very excited to share with you guys. And uh, we're going to do that now. April 16th, a month before uh, the Jersey Shore Jam 2, Rock and Roll Union and North Step Productions proudly present... Roxy Blue and Friends, man. That's it. We got Roxy Blue. So excited for that, man. It's going to be a full evening of mayhem, a full evening of rock. It's going to be pounding out. We're going to have Zenora with us. We're going to have Tunnel Crush with us. And we're also going to have the Goons with us, man. Live at Bure, April 16th. Tickets are now available. You can go ahead and grab them, man. Really, really excited to see those guys, man. All it's just a phenomenal rock show. No matter how you place it, man, the weather's getting beautiful. You know you want to get out. No better time than to come see Roxy Blue and all the other bands coming with them, guys, man. I'm telling you, this is the greatest rock show you'll probably see within a year. And uh, we're going to go ahead and listen to a little rock, Roxy Blue. Here's rock star chunk. <laughs>
was Rockstar Junkie by Roxy Blue. Like I announced before that song, we are officially North Step Productions and Rock and Roll Union proudly presents Roxy Blue and Friends, man. That's going to be Roxy Blue, Tonal Crush, Zenora, and the Goons, man. Really, really excited for that show. Wanted to give a big shout out and a big thank you. Uh, a lot of the stuff that you see in here come from me. But there is a core group of people behind me that I, I must say a big shout out and a big thank you to that are start that have been with me or just just getting on board now. And I want to say a big shout out and a thank you first off to my wife, the lovely Dee. She has been behind me 100% since day one. I want to say a big shout out and thank you to her, to Brett Hunt. Man, it's been great connecting with this guy and. Uh, I'm telling you, he is the place to go for pick sticks and laminates. If you're looking to step up your merch game, you're looking to get into the next realm of your promotional gig, guys. If you're looking to get out customs, drumsticks to that drummer in your life, VIP passes, backstage pass, laminates, those sort of things, and custom picks, guys. Rock and Roll Union just got its official custom picks, guys, from this guy. And he's the real deal. Brett Hunt is a gentleman throw and throw and a phenomenal asset to the Rock and Roll Union com community. So if you need anything done in those forms, make sure you reach out to Brett Hunt Customs at 410-508-1233. Once again, that number is 410-508-1233. Or you can look him up on Facebook under Brett Hunt Customs. Another person I need to thank and who has been behind me, and we just got our order in. We're going to be ready and roaring to go for Roxy Blue and Friends. The Rock and Roll U Union merch is coming in via Ken Shepard and Phoenix Custom Printing, guys. If you need T-shirts any for your rock needs or for family outings, little leagues, anything, this guy is the guy to go to. His number is 410-206-2081. Once again, that's 410-206-2081. Or you can reach him via email at phoenixcustominc at gmail.com. He will set up everything you need. And for union members only, you get 20% off your order let them know that CT sent you. Same with Brett Hunt Customs. Right now, he's doing free artwork. You're only paying for the picks, guys. I'm telling you, this is an insane savings to you. So just let them know that CT sent you. And finally, another person that's had my back is Rock Doc David Rosenfeld. And he is at Rosenfeld Dental Associates, located at 1095 Inman Avenue, Edison, New Jersey, five minutes from Metro Park, www.njsmile.com. Come rock your smile with the Rock Doc David Rosenfeld, nominated one of New Jersey's top dentists for 2020. Discounts apply for Rock and Roll Union members. Tell them CT sent you. I was talking to Dave a little earlier today, and he was telling me, man, you're not going to believe these different rock stars that come in and out of the dentist office. So, it, who knows? I'm not going to guarantee you're going to see somebody, but you just might. And uh, if you don't, Rock Doc's going to take care of you anyway, and then you're going to come out with a beautiful smile. Big shout out to Rock Doc for that. Guys, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be joined 
momentarily by Jonathan Mover. Jonathan Mover is a drummer who has a long, long history. He tours with Saigon Kick. He's uh, played replacement drummer for Alice Cooper. He's been in the trenches, knows what he's talking about. We're going to be talking everything rock and roll with him. And uh, hold, hold tight. Don't go nowhere. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Total Package, Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out. Check out In the Room every Tuesday night at 9. Listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Kathy Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right, Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Taku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off uh, buildings. And then uh, I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into like snuff film territory there. In the room, 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Wrestling with history, the voice of choice, and killer can wrestling. When I die, they're going to open me up and find about 2,000 undigested Northwest Airline cheese omelets. Mr. Chris Cruz, what's going on? Jesus, how did I get roped into this? General Adnan went to school with Saddam Hussein. He cried, I cried, he cried, and who could have Adnan lost a lot of family in the Iraqi war. Everybody loves Granny. Wow. Yeah, see, a lot of people don't know that. Yes, Taylor, you guys are busting me up. Catch Wrestling With History with Ken Resnick and I live on VOCNation.com Wednesday nights at 9.30 Eastern Time or listen to the podcast by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. Stadium Journey, the worldwide leader in stadium reviews for the traveling sports fan, is proud to present the Stadium Journey podcast on VOC Nation. Join us as we talk with prominent figures from around the sports world to discuss issues pertaining to sports travel and stadiums around the globe. New episodes air on VOC Nation Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Join Paul Baker, Dave Cartney, Mark Viquez, Dan Calachico, and guests from throughout the sports world on the Stadium Journey podcast on VOC Nation. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week. Talking dream matches. Taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out. VOCNation.com. WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. Rock and Roll Union and North Step Productions, in conjunction with Boo Ray Atlantic City, proudly present Jersey Shore Jam 2. May 15th. Featuring As We Become Ghosts and Rat Rod. It's been a long, cold winter, and now it's time to rock. Also appearing, the Rock and Roll Union house band Shades of Grey, playing all of your favorites from the 60s to now. All COVID regulations will be in place. Tickets are available at eventbrite.com and are extremely limited, so get them before they run out. Doors open at 6 and showtime is at 7. Rat Rod, As We Become Ghosts, and Shades of Grey. Jersey Shore Jam 2, May 15th at Blu-ray, 201 South New York Avenue, Atlantic City. Did I mention there's free parking? Don't miss it. Yo, this is Jerry Stein of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs here. You get ready to get nasty. 
Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby, because it's about to get nasty all around and up in this mother. Get ready. Nasty sensation is coming at you. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network.
was Saigon Kick and What You Say. Guys, just to let you know, you know, I did not anticipate as many shows as we're doing this year. And it's kind of funny. It just keeps opening up and keeps opening up. And Rock and Roll Union is always there, happy and proud to kind of wave our flag and let you know that we're there. So as we announced, April 16th, Roxy Blue and Friends live at Bure. May 15th, we're also having the Jersey Shore Jam 2 and the luncheon. So if you guys are in the rock realm at all, if you're a promoter, a producer, a record label exec, a musician, no matter what it what it is, we're having a luncheon at Bure in Atlantic City, May 15th, 1 o'clock. We need an RSVP for this, guys, just so we can let the let the restaurant know who's coming, who's who's going to be there, and how many people they need to provide for. Uh, lunch will be on your bill. You, you guys will be responsible for your own lunch, but uh, we're we're all going to be getting together, breaking bread, and seeing what we can do to further this rock and roll scene. Man, really excited for that. This is the second year that we're doing that. And also announced, we are, my birthday fell on a Saturday this year, first time in Rock and Roll Union history, so I decided what better way to celebrate my birthday than giving you guys a kick-ass rock and roll show. Right now, we've announced two bands. We've announced Blackleg Minor, who is the 2020 Rock and Roll Union Artist of the Year, and we've also announced a band who is debuting for the very first time in a full set black rose rebellion man really excited to see what these guys have in store man it's going to be a kick-ass show that's july 31st no tickets in advance needed for that one but for the jersey shore jam 2 and the roxy blue tickets are available through eventbrite man really really excited uh like i said man so much stuff going on and i have to also give a big shout out I give a shout-out to the team that we've kind of established here, man. We have a team of union members that were quickly becoming a force. And the last member of that family that I must really say a big thank you to is C.J. Murphy and Blackleg Minor, man. You guys have stepped up. You guys have really been everything that I could ask for, man. And uh, we're going to go ahead and listen to Girl Gonna Bite. Once that's over, we're going to be joined by Jonathan Mover. Don't go nowhere, guys. Here is Black Leg Miner.
That was Blackleg Miner and Girl Gonna Bite. On the line right now, I believe we have Jonathan Mover with us, drummer extraordinaire. Jonathan, you with us? I'm with you, if you're with me. Hey, man, thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to spend with us, man, and uh, really, really happy to welcome you. Oh, thanks. I appreciate the invitation. Man, so, you, you know, I, I went through a lot of your history, and I was looking at the the various band, man, you, you played with so many people and it's extraordinary to me. And, you know, uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, you grew up in Boston, but at a young age, you moved to London. Uh, you started your, your drumming experience at age 13 in Boston, but then you quickly moved to Boston, uh, to London. How was their approach to music different than what you were getting in the United States? Um, I'm not sure that I could say, uh, I don't know if I could comment on their approach, you know, because I was already playing and throughout high school playing professionally, so I was set in my ways. But, I mean, you know, the reason for my going over there was really uh, the music that influenced me the most as a teenager, uh, you know, from the Beatles to Genesis and Yes and King Crimson and ELP, the music that I was into. Um, you know, as well as uh, thinking of a, of a life as a freelance player, you know, going from gig to gig to gig and not necessarily somebody that would be part of a band. There were more right. singular players in the UK that I, you know, were, you know, who I would like to time rather than Americans. Not to say there weren't any Americans, but my dream as a kid was to be playing with, you know, Jeff Beck or Steve Howe or David Gilmore or, Tony Banks, so those are the people gotcha. that were in London, and so that's why I gravitated that way, uh, and uh, yeah, the rest was history. So, in those early stages, who did you look up to most as far as inspiration for drumming? Um, you know, <laughs> I could spend a day giving you all of my heroes, <laughs> but there there were certainly a few stages I went through of people that were really monumental to my development. And, you know, really early on, again, with prog rock being uh, my favorite type of music and the reason I started playing, you know, Carl Palmer and Bill Bruford and Phil Collins especially uh, were early gone, you know, I mean, because, again, I was listening to the bands that they were playing. And and anybody from that that era, you know, Barrymore Barlow with Jethro Tull is one of the greatest drummers on the planet. John Weathers from Gentle Giant, uh, you know, was a big influence as well. And, and of course, the American, I guess you could say, progressive drummers, like the guys that played the Zappa, you know, Vinny and Terry and Chester yeah, yeah. Thompson, Ralph Humphrey, Ainsley Dunbar, and, uh, you know, Willie Wilcox from Utopia with Todd Rundgren. So uh, Rod Morgenstein from the Dixie Dregs. I was a huge Morgenstein fan and still am. So those were the guys that kind of got me started, which made me excited to play drums and sit down you know, on my kit with a set of headphones on, listening to their tunes and playing along with them. But then I would say there were two or three guys monumental after that that really did blow my mind and shake my my playing style as well as my thought process. And the first and probably the most major guy to come along would have been Simon Phillips. When I first heard Simon playing with 801, and then I started collecting everything that Simon played on, 
And, of course, through Simon, I got turned on to Billy Cobham and, and other guys um, in that genre. And then, you know, the stage after that was more about groove to me. So the early guys in prog rock were odd time and crazy arrangements and orchestral, right. you know, playing and stuff. Then Simon got me into, you know, the real chops and the technique and kind of honing my craft on playing very difficult fusion-esque music. But then I got into all the groove monsters, and that would be Steve Gadd, Dave Maddox, Andy Newmark, Steve Jordan, Rick Morata, his brother Jerry Morata, Peter Erskine, Dennis Chambers. I mean, again, it's, it's kind of endless. And, you know, at this stage in the game, I still listen to all of them, look up to all of them, wish I could play like all of them, <laughs> and uh, just in, enjoy all of them. But those, those, you know, in a nutshell, and I'm sure I'm leaving many people out, but those were the ones that were really monumental to me, um, you know, in my, uh, you know, formative years when I was, when I was, you know, getting it all together. That's awesome, man. I, I gotta say, my uh, my oldest son is named Colin after Phil Collins. So believe me, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a true prog rock fan myself. And I, yeah. I just gotta ask. I'm not a drummer, but I gotta ask. Like you had you had mentioned as far as weird time arrangements and weird uh, weird timings were concerned. How difficult was it for you to to either change from prog rock to like a basic rock beat? or vice versa? Um, it was actually easy for me physically. Um, it was more of, a, of an emotional and, dare I say, spiritual change that to me came later on. And, and I'm glad it happened that way because I think one of the worst things that a teacher or anybody can do to somebody coming up in music is to tell them what's right and wrong with regard to, you know, keeping uh, time signatures and, um, you know, subdivision of notes and everything. And what I mean by that right. is, you know, basic teachers usually say something like, I'm going to teach you how to play in two and three and four, and we'll do a little bit of six. Maybe we'll touch base on seven, but, you know, everything else is kind of evil. And when you think that way, you're not taking in the correct concept of, what is in a measure of time, whatever that measure is, whether it's 19 or whether it's four, it's exactly the same. It's just that the notes inside are proportionately different. But if you have a measure of 1916, you've got 1916 notes spaced evenly, do whatever you want with them. If you have a measure right. of four, four, you have four quarter notes spaced evenly, do whatever you want. And so, you know, beginning by ear and playing to Genesis and Yes and Zappa and Mahavishnu, I was playing in 19 and 21 and 13, but not even knowing it. So I was just playing <laughs> musically by ear, which I think is a great asset. Later on, when I was doing more of the groove stuff, and, and of course, you know, not to um, not to uh, toot my horn, but especially when I played with Aretha Franklin for several years, oh, yeah. it came to grooving. It was a much more, it was a definitely a more mature way of having to look at and play music that I didn't have when I was a kid. Um, you know, I, I look at guys like, like Simon, you know, who started out when he was three. And when you have, you know, when you listen to <laughs> records and he did them when Simon was playing at 13 and 14, he was already playing like an adult. And the same thing with a guy like Charlie Drayton. 
And, you know, they just had it really early on. I didn't get that sense of groove and musicality until, you know, later in my career. And I'm glad I have it now, and I think I have it now. Um, but it, it probably would have come in handy if I had it in my 20s, but I was much more about, you know, chops and, and piss and vinegar back then and throwing right. in everything that I was, you know, studied with Gary Chafee. I wanted to find a way to utilize it. So, uh, yeah, it's come full circle, but I am glad that I started with the more difficult stuff first and I played by ear before I knew how to count it. Now you brought up one of my like one of my idols, which is Aretha Franklin. How was it? How mm. was it playing with her? And uh, do you have any good stories that you could? Re- it was an unbelievable experience playing with her in all of all of the best ways. Um, truly, uh, a gift and uh, you know a dream come true for me, because you know when I was growing up, like I said before, in the basement. You know, I was playing to, I used to do three things. I used to play to all my favorite records, which were from the artists that I mentioned prior. I also used to just put the radio on randomly and just play to anything that came up, not just to see how quickly I could jump on it and adapt to it, but just, you know, to try to play a little bit of everything and, uh, and you know, love doing that, which came in handy for my career because I think most of my career has been being like a rescue call where it's a last minute somebody's in the studio or on tour, there's a drummer issue, and I come in you know, blind, not knowing anything, and I have to play it. And I really do love doing that, which is one of the reasons I love doing a lot of jingle and TV work when I was in New York, because you literally walk into a studio, you get handed a sheet of paper with your notation, your time signature, your dynamics, and, um, and, and everything else on there. you got about five minutes to look it over, and then you get to play it down once, and then you record it. And if you don't nail it, they don't call you again. So, you know, the other thing that I did in my basement was I played relentlessly to Aretha Franklin and James Brown for the love of the music Hell and the yeah. groove, never, never in my life dreaming that I would ever get the call to play with, you know, one of them, let alone the Queen of Soul. Wow. And I'll tell you, it's funny. I've got a hundred stories that would take up, you know, an, an entire day. <laughs> but I will tell you a funny story, which is how I got the call for the gig. So when I played in a band, band called GTR, we were signed to Arista Records. So I got to know Clive Davis a bit, and I knew the A&R guys there. And I had moved to New York. Uh, I moved back. I moved to New York from London in 89. And so I think this was 1990 or 91. I'd been there a year or so. And I was out. I um I have a, a Harley, which I love to ride, and I was out one beautiful afternoon on my Harley. It was late spring, and um, I came in, and there was a, you know, uh, my, my answering machine was blinking. So I popped on the message, and it was a guy from Arista Records, I believe, named Andrew Holt. Andrew Holt, and he said, hey, I'm, you know, looking for Jonathan Mover, trying to reach you to see if you can sit in and sight-read a gig with Aretha Franklin this evening in Boston at 8 o'clock. Please call me back. So I at wow. first thought it was a joke because people, you know, they do play jokes like that. And, um, but I called the number, and sure enough, I went through to Andrew Holt, and I said, look, man, I can do the gig, but I think you're mistaken. You probably want Jonathan Moffat. He's the black R&B drummer that played with, you know, uh, Madonna and, uh, you know, George Michael and, and, and the Jacksons. I'm the white rock guy with the nose ring and the long hair that played with, you know, Joe Satriani and Alice Cooper. So he said, no, man, you know, we know who you are from, from GTR. 
And Clive Davis personally said, call you. So I said, yes, I'll absolutely do it. So I, I grabbed my stick bag. I got the first flight I could take up there, which was about, you know, six or so at night. I got to the venue. I didn't even meet Aretha. I met the musical director and a couple of the guys in the band. And I got the charts, the book, whipped through everything as quick as I could, got on stage, started playing. And uh, it was wonderful because in the middle of the gig, she turned around and she said, give the drummer some. I took a, you know, I took a groove solo. And at the end of the song, she said, you know, a hand for my drummer. I have no idea who it is. I've never met him before, but thank you very much for, for coming up and playing. So at the end of the gig, I had my camera and I walked up to her and I said, Miss Franklin, this was a dream come true. And if I never play drums again, I can say that I've, you know, accomplished what I needed to accomplish. Thank you very much. Can we take a picture? We took a photo and she said, I really enjoyed your playing. If I need you again, you know, can I call you? Of course, I said yes. And I split. That was it. So I got back to New York. And, of course, I didn't hear anything for a few weeks. And I just figured, yeah, that's fine. I can say that I played with Aretha, even if it's once. I bailed right. them out of a tough spot because their drummer didn't show. And about three weeks later, I got a call from the tour manager that said, uh, you know, the gig that you played was the last one on that leg. Aretha wanted me to call and, and offer you the gig if you want to continue on, uh, which I did. Wow. And, and it, was, it was priceless. Every single night on stage with her, there were a dozen times that I would just look up in the air, whether it was inside or outside, and say, if there's anybody up there that helped make this happen, thank you, because this is just unfucking believable playing with Aretha <laughs> Franklin. Man, it was, it was really priceless. So I, no. I was very, very lucky for that. Unfortunately, you can't see me because I'm on the other side of the phone, but I got a smile ear to ear listening to these stories. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, you said uh, an, another person that's near and dear to me is Alice Cooper, and you were <laughs> called as a last minute substitute, but was that the first time that you were called for him? No, no. Actually, you know, I love Alice as a guy. Uh, he's an amazing golfer and definitely improved my game whenever I do get a chance to play with him. Um, and I'm a huge fan of his music. I mean, you know, I had all of the early Cooper records right up and through, like, Flush the Fashion when I was a teenager yeah. and, and preteen. So, you know, playing with him, again, like uh, like Aretha, was an honor. Um, and uh, But the, the biggest drag, every time I see Alice and get the opportunity, I say, look, you know, I'm always coming in in the middle of something that's going down. I never have the opportunity to rehearse with you, you know, for a month to get stuff together. Maybe one day that'll happen. But no, the, you know, the two times that I've been out with him were both last-minute rescue calls. And the first one was back in 89 when he was about to do the trash tour. And um, I, I, I just moved to New York, and I had been – actually, I had been in the Soviet Union for the summer of 89 on one of the first big rock tours that ever went through most of the Soviet Union. And I got back and there were frantic phone calls from Cooper's management saying, we have troubles. We've been trying out a bunch of guys. Your name keeps on coming up. Can you do this? And it was basically for the trash tour. So I flew out to LA and, um, and I got the, yeah, you know, they hired me on the spot. And then I went out on, on the trash tour and then during a break of trash, I finished up and I went back with Satriani because he had another world tour going on. 
Wow. And I've always been friendly with them. But then, yeah, I got another call from Alice. Uh, I think it was in the summer of 2012 or maybe in 2013 um, that the drummer at the time had some neck and back injuries and uh, they needed somebody to jump in. So they called me on a Wednesday in New York City and uh, I met with the guys on Thursday to discuss the set list and whatever. And I showed up Friday and, and jumped on stage. They were doing a, a dual <laughs> tour, opening up for Iron Maiden. So the gigs were wow. in front of, you know, 20,000, 30,000 people. And it was just like home, you know, got right back on the kit, played the other drummer's uh, gear, which wasn't so great for me, but I did it. And, uh, you know, ended up staying with Alice for about, I think it was four months or so. We did the double bill with uh, Iron Maiden in America, Canada, and Europe. And then we did a bunch of dates with Alice headlining uh, in America. And, and that was that. But, yeah, I've yet to have a comfortable situation where, you know, Alice calls me up and says, hey, you want to do a tour? We're going to rehearse for a month. We're going to get a whole show together. No, they call me up on, you know, an hour before a gig, and I, I just jump in and do it. But I must admit, I really do love that. I, I do like, you know, being a rescue call, and I like the same thing for records that I, you know, have been lucky to get called for. Um, it's just a blast to show up and interpret things on the spot and come up with ideas and, and knock them out one after another. I really enjoy that. So I, I got to ask you, as, call, as being called up as like an emergency rescue type situation, how much material do you have to learn and how quickly? Um, well, again, it's, it's different. Like with Aretha Franklin, um, I'll give you three examples. So with Aretha, there were about 90 songs in the book, and they would pull out about 15 to 20 different ones. Of course, we, we, wow. you know, we played Respect every night and Chain of Fools every night, but you know, there were others that came and went. And so you know, an hour or two before the show, we would pull out 15 to 20 charts. We'd start going through them and take them in you know, visually, make some notes. And then sometimes at the last minute, she would change something, and we'd have to shuffle the, the book and find another one to play. And a lot of it was sight reading. With Alice... Um, it was on the spot, you know, there was no rehearsal, no nothing. I walked on stage uh, in front of 20 or so, 20,000 people. And I just said, you know, to the bass player and to the guitar player, you know, give me a cue when this one starts. And if I need <laughs> to stop, you know, lift, lift the end of your neck and let me see your head start go up and down and just stuff like that. And then from that point on, I would make notes every single day. Wow. When it comes to a session in the studio, like when I did the first fuel record, which is one of my favorite records that I played on. And I don't say that for my drumming. I say that for the music. I just think that the first Fuel record, which we did in 97, was one of the best alternative rock records that came out at the time. I just love the compositions. I love the lyrics. And I really enjoyed the guys in the band and working for Stephen Hagler. But that was a – I got a phone call on a Sunday morning. They were up in Longview Farm in Massachusetts. They were having some troubles. And, you know, could I be there that day? So I packed up a four-piece kit, and I drove up to Longview. I met the band. We had dinner. And then my routine for recording in the studio when I don't know anything is play me the song, either live or a demo of it. I'll make a cheat sheet of notes, get some ideas, and then I go in either playing with them or on my own, and I will do a few different versions, like the first verse this way, the second verse this way, the first chorus I'll play on the ride cymbal, the second open a hi-hat, 
and then I'll come in and say, which ones do you like, what don't you like? And then from there, I go in and I do a real take. And, you know, uh, usually it's first or second take, and then if they want to change something, I do it. So with the Fuel record, we, I got up there around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, we had dinner uh, set up in the studio and started working at, I think, around 7 or 8 at night. We did nine songs the first night and finished up around 4 o'clock in the morning because Stephen Hagler was going to fall over. He was so tired, and I was pumped to continue. And then we, uh, you know, we got some sleep, had breakfast. We started recording again, six more tunes, uh, seven more actually. And I was, I was home the, the, the next night. So, wow. you know, just listen to it, interpret it, make your notes, play it. If it takes you more than an hour to do a song, then something's definitely not right. And, uh, <laughs> and that's how I look at it. I, I got it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say that's my formula for anybody I'm working with, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, doing new material with Satriani in the studio or, uh, you know, or Fuel or, or Leander or anybody. Yeah. So I'm sorry, you were going to say? I, I was going to ask you how you got involved with Saigon Kick. Oh, um, very simply because I was a huge fan of the band. Um uh, a very good friend of mine uh, who was one of the artist relations guy, I believe, it, yeah, Atlantic, and I think he found Saigon. I don't know if he signed them, but I think he found them. His name is Dave Feld. He's not in the industry anymore, but uh, Dave was a friend of mine in New York City. I don't remember. I, I must have played on a session for, him, you know, for an Atlantic artist, and we met, and I was in his office one day, and he said, let me play you this new band that I'm that I just discovered. And he played me the demos of Saigon kick. And from the minute I heard them, I loved the band. I just thought for like fuel, the compositions were great. The lyrics were great. And, um, Phil Verone, the drummer, I loved what he was playing. Uh, and just the whole thing was cool. When the record came out, they were playing in New York city and I wasn't in town. I was either, you know, on tour with Joe Satriani or somebody, but I missed the gig. And then they literally were, you know, whenever I was home and they were playing next, they were in Boston. So I got in the car and I drove all the way up to Boston just to go see them play and meet them and say hi. And we became friends. I became friends with everybody in the band. And so I, I did some solo, I did a solo record and some sessions with Matt Kramer, the lead singer. And I've been very close with Phil Verone for many, many years. And I'm doing a couple of gigs actually with Jason Beeler. So I was just kind of in the camp of family. And when they were having some troubles and, and Phil, you know, was in and out of the band because he was doing different projects and he was looking at other, you know, um, career moves, they called me and asked me if I would sit in, which I did. So, uh, wow. yeah, I think I played with them off and on for maybe six or seven years, something like that. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. I, honestly, I, I hate to ask you because we're we're coming up on our end already. But like I can yeah. sit here all day and listen to your stories. I got to I got to bring it back for a second part. Um, okay. What are you looking forward to doing once this whole COVID situation's over? Or what What are you looking to get back to? Um, well, right before COVID, uh, not long before, but um, I had, I got another rescue call for something called a band called the Musical Box, and the Musical Box is the biggest and most successful. Uh, Genesis tribute band in the world pretty much you know they go out and they play Genesis note for note 
and um, and they have the same gear, the same stage set up, lights, everything. They really take it to the extreme. And so they had a drummer issue, and <laughs> literally they called me up the night before they were starting at four, <laughs> and this was some serious serious music uh it wasn't the pop genesis it was robbery assault and battery and wow. um you know los andos and dance on a volcano um flying a windshield it was all the early amazing stuff so they had a drummer issue they called a bunch of guys and nobody would take it they called me and said you know are you available and i said yeah you know email me your set list and and the dates and i'll uh you know and i'll get ready and they said well we need you tomorrow so Anyway, wow. long story short, I flew across the country, I sat in with them, and I literally went back to my childhood of the, all the <laughs> reasons why I love playing drums, which was progressive rock and just that type of music, you know, epic orchestrated arrangements and everything. So um, I put together a, a project. I've got two projects happening. One of them is going to be hitting the road on tour this fall. And um, it's on the prog side of things. And then I have a studio, uh, a band project, which has some prog people in it also that found out about what I was doing and called me up and said, would you be interested? So I'm hoping to have a couple of things, you know, coming out later in the year, one on record, probably to tour later after that. But this other live thing that I'm going to be doing that maybe the second time we talk, um, because we're just, you know, copywriting the name and the logo and getting all the info together now. Uh, I'll announce it soon enough and then, you know, be hitting the road with, with a nice big progressive rock drum kit all over again and awesome. a keyboard player that's surrounded like Keith Emerson. So, yeah, that's, that's oh, yeah. basically what's on the horizon. And just getting man. back to life, you know. That's awesome, man. And, uh, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for everything, uh, for being with us tonight. And I'll be in touch shortly with trying to get another another show under our belts hopefully longer to talk the next time man but uh man it's been great talking to you no my pleasure call anytime and and i look forward to it again thanks a lot man have a great rest of your weekend thank you you too take care bye-bye guys that was jonathan mover and my mind is blown man so many good stories so many i when when I tell you I'm a big fan of Aretha Franklin, to talk to her, one of her drummers is just phenomenal. And uh, really, really excited to bring him back. We're going to have a second date. Uh, I'll let you guys know when, but what a great show, man. That, that was such a great show. And uh, on the line now, I believe we got our boys, man, from Virginia. Last night's villain, you guys with us? I'm here, yeah, man. I'm here. Hey, man. This is well, Andy. The first thing I got to say is long time coming, man. You know, I've been in touch with you guys since the very beginning of Rock and Roll Union, and you guys have been kicking since then, and uh, it's about time I got you on here. Yeah, man. We've been excited for this. Looking forward to it. So uh, I, I got to ask you guys, uh, you guys just, you know, I talked to Andy a little bit aside from uh, – being on the air, obviously, and he said that you guys were just starting to get back into the swing of things after COVID and the whole situation, and how's things going right now? Good. First off, who, who all is on here? Sean, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, brother. <laughs> uh, cool, man. <laughs> Anybody else? Is it just me and Sean? This is, this is wild. We're doing uh, 
phone interviews. I'm kicking it rock and roll style, sitting in front of Petco with my two-year-old son asleep in the back while my <laughs> wife is in Petco walking around. <laughs> yeah, we had our first rehearsal back. Like, gosh, we had a rehearsal last week, but Wayne couldn't be be there because Wayne works in the emergency room, which is actually where he's at right now. But uh, we had our first full band rehearsal this past Thursday since, gosh, the first part of November. Yeah, we're we're glad to be back to it. I believe we have another one of you guys joining us. Who just called in? Hey, man, it's Gary. How are you? Hey, Gary. How you doing? Good, man. Man, so uh, I believe it was Andy that was saying that you guys just got back into the first full practice, man, first full rehearsal. Uh, How was it? Like, dusting the rust off and – did it take you guys a, a little bit of time to get back into the swing of things? Uh, no, this, this is Sean. Ab- absolutely not, man. I mean, you know, of course, COVID a lot of, brought a lot of things down, a lot of people down. But the thing about this band is we're all seasoned veterans, but we all just click so perfectly together. It doesn't take 10 minutes for us to get back into the groove. And, uh, you know, we've already finalized two new songs. So, um, you know, everything just went smooth as can be. So we're really happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Now, I mean, with with the downtime, I mean, I'm sure everybody, me included, kind of home-based, not doing a whole lot. Uh, How have you guys been handling the whole situation? Mm, Well, I mean, uh, I teach martial arts, so, like, I did not have classes, like, from last March through about August because everything was shut down. And then when my classes restarted in August, it was like no contact. And it's very hard to teach uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and karate when you can't touch each other. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're just kind of making the students do exercises and you know, just you know try to stay sharp. But, you know, we were scared to have rehearsal and, uh, you know, but we still uh, practice. You know, I practice my guitar every night no matter what, even if I don't if I only have five minutes, I pull it out and I'll run through some scales, but I'm always writing riffs, writing songs and stuff. And, uh, you know, the rest of the fellows are practicing. I think Chris lives with his bass. He has like 50 bases. So, uh, you know, (laughs) yeah, as far as, as far as I go, you know, I'm always beating on something. I'm always, you know, practicing (laughs) when I can. Um, you know, I work in HVAC, so I work 60 hours a week and my wife and I just bought our first house. So you could imagine that, it's been oh, pretty yeah. crazy. As a matter, as a matter of fact, I just got done laying some flooring. So UPA, it's pretty awesome and cool. But uh, yeah, just been staying busy. I mean, as far as work and all that goes, there's really been no downtime. We just have to be really careful and a lot of restrictions and regulations we have to follow because of COVID. But other than that, it's just been rolling, man. That's that's about it. Man. Yeah, and with me, man, I'm I'm in the manufacturing, and uh, we never slowed up. Uh, we actually picked up some steam through all of it, which was kind of crazy. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we just it, – it's it sucks not to be out there playing, uh, but we do. We all get together and uh, when we can and uh, throw down some riffs, man. And like Andy said, we've all been working on some stuff, and every spare moment that, that I've got, I sit down and grab a guitar. So, you know. Yeah, so to say, it's definitely been depressing, not not playing shows, but I mean, that's the hand we've been dealt. All we can do is hope, and that's that's what we've been doing. We'll still do it, we'll always do it, 
we just hope there'll be some kind of normalcy that'll come back to this because it's definitely we're living in some crazy times. That's pretty much all I can say. So, absolutely. We haven't played a show hey. since um, March, like right before all the shutdown. I think we played with uh, Silvertone, a really uh, good band out of uh, oh, hell yeah. Baltimore area, and uh, we played with them. And then, like I think the very next week or so was when all the you know everything shut down. So yeah, and, you know, got yeah. our first show coming up uh, May fourteenth in Roanoke, Virginia. We are supporting uh, Battery. Um, they're supposed to be like the nation's top Metallica tribute band. Like Metallica supposedly endorses them. So we're looking forward to that, playing Dr. Pepper Park in Roanoke, Virginia. That'll be a good uh, first show back. But, I mean, yeah, it's, that'll be our first show in a year and a couple of months. So that's that's pretty crazy because we usually play out like twice a month. Now, uh, one thing, like I was, I was saying earlier on in the show was – it seems like a lot of energy, a lot of creativity has been going on uh, through this whole pandemic. Are you guys seeing that? Are you doing more writing? Or are you doing any kind of recording, any new material coming out? Yeah, we've got two new originals right now. I mean, the music industry is so crazy. We, I mean, we're all older. and We come from the album era, you know, CDs, records. But it doesn't really oh, yeah. pay to release a full release anymore. So, I mean, we'd like to, but we've got uh, a couple of new originals we're going to be recording, and we'll probably release one. Uh, hopefully, we'd like to release it before we play with the uh, Metallica tribute on May 14th, but, uh, you know, release a single, and then two or three months down the road, release another one, just to keep, uh, you know, keep something new out there, because people's attention spans are really short these days, and plus, most people only do streaming for their music. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we've got new, new tunes, but, I mean, it's crazy, because we... Gosh, I mean, our, we released, I guess you'd call it our album, nearly two years ago, and we're still getting plays. We, uh, the, the video for The Poison just got added to uh, a thing called Rebel TV. It's an app on Roku, and um, the dude just added our video to that, and our video is two years old. <laughs> so to someone who's <laughs> never heard the song or seen the video, you know, it's new to them. Right. So you know, because of the Internet, we're getting mileage off of, you know, our two-year-old song which is still cool. So, yeah, we've got new stuff coming out. So hopefully we'll in the next and, couple of months. So. As far as the poison and going back to the first album, how long did it take to record? And, like, what do you guys remember most from that recording session? <laughs> I remember the video for the poison more so than recording. <laughs> but but I'll let the other guys chime in. I'll explain that later. <laughs> Yeah, well, it yeah. I mean, the video, the video making was crazy, but I mean, the studio. I mean, basically, I mean, Sean and I go in and lay down the basic scratch tracks. You know, I play along with Sean, so he gets the drum tracks down. And we've been doing this so long. He and I just go in there and we nail the cuts. And it usually takes us maybe like a couple, two takes, and we've got it. And we've got the yeah. Tracks, I think. And then, you know, I'll go back yeah, in think, and redo guitars and go ahead, Sean. I mean the the. The recording session was so fast for me, and I think Andy probably feels this way too. I believe there's seven songs on the album. I think the first day we went in, Andy and I cut the uh, drums and the guitar for the poison. But then the next time that we went in, we cut like four or five tracks in one day. So that was kind of a blur that was pretty fast. I mean, we just click like that. We just, you know, it's, wow. it just syncs perfectly. But as far as what I remember most is like what Gary was saying, the shooting for the Poison video, because 
we actually started <laughs> shooting at like five in the evening and we didn't stop till like three in the morning. I remember I had to tear down my drums, set down my drums in like six different spots. We got covered in chocolate syrup to look like blood. Uh, you know, it was it was it was very interesting. It was really cool. I had to go to work the next day. I had like two hours sleep, but it was totally worth it because you know it's a pretty it's a pretty wild standing video. In, so. Just standing in the parking yeah. lot, getting unclothed because we have chocolate dripping off of us. Don't want to get it in a car, you know. So we yeah, so just imagine buck naked. <laughs> Yeah, just imagine band members and just imagine band members in the parking lot ripping our clothes off. We fully intended to throw those clothes away, just throwing clothes in a trash bag, all standing out there naked. You know that 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 probably should have been documented too for some kind of behind the scenes footage. That would have been pretty rad. So and that Gary has a chocolate syrup fetish. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I got to have chocolate syrup. <laughs> That's right. We're gonna we're gonna bust our bass player's chops right now because he hasn't called in. Like he hated the part where we got the chocolate syrup poured on us because it was basically like, oh, uh, what do you call like the water torture? Um, we we were waterboarding. Waterboarding. There, I get waterboard. We basically got waterboarded by the producer with chocolate syrup. Yeah, and it's no pretty shit. freaky yeah. feeling. And like Chris hated that, so we bust his balls about that all the time. Which I don't know why. Yeah, he I mean, in. so we're gonna bust his balls I, about that later. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what the hell? Why chocolate syrup? But you know, the concept was black and white, and actually, the producer's a really smart guy. And back in the yeah. days before color, that's what yeah. they used for blood yep. because you know you really you couldn't see it, so it was really cool. But yeah, I've done a yeah, couple fun of times. movies for uh, the producer. His name is uh, Christopher Townsend. Nyfa N Y F A Kid Nyfa Kid on Instagram, all social media. But uh, he's done a couple of independent films I've been in. He's, uh, gosh, he's toured with tons of different bands as their photographer. He's done everything from Slayer to Modest Yahoo to Switchfoot. Wow. And he's he's the guy that directed our video and made us do all these crazy things and all. So when you see the video for The Poison, all the crazy stuff in it is his idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we basically wanted to – by the end of the night, we wanted to kill him. But we gave him full trust because we knew he knew what he was doing. And the end, the end product, you know, we couldn't have been happier, so. Yeah, the dude, so dude did real. Guys, how do you top this for the next video? <laughs> uh, I guess we just, I guess I we just call him him and, and, yeah. I would say get the nude shots in the parking lot. <laughs> we'll have to pour that, uh, what's the, uh, the, thai, the red Thai hot sauce they have at the Asian restaurants. We'll have to pour that all over ourselves or something. Jeez. <laughs> 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 so I, I got to ask how normally pre-COVID, how is the Virginia rock scene? Are you guys getting a lot of traction there, or is it? I mean, I, I could sense that there's probably some country coming up out of there, but there's some rock coming out of there. How is the, well, the local I'll, music scene for you guys? Well, I'll speak. I'll say my part really quickly. Um, you know, I come from an extreme metal background. I was in a black metal, death metal band for about seven years, and we actually toured the country twice. And as far as here, original music, for some reason, people, they don't care about. I mean, I don't know what it is, but, you know, you could have a really killer original band come play, five people to show up. But if you have a Leonard Skinner cover band or a Molly Hatchet cover band or – just a cover band generally, they're going to flock to that. I, I don't really know why that is. I mean, you know, you would think you'd want to go check out something new, but people around here, they're really into the cover band. That's why, like, when we play a 
three-hour show or whatever, of course we're going to play our originals, but we have to sprinkle in covers, but we try to keep it covers that we love, you know, like Wasp and things like that. And to keep people's attention, we'll throw in something that's more modern, something that people more know, like Godsmack or something like that. Because if you honestly honestly play a two-hour show of originals, People don't care. I mean, it's 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 very strange around here. It's really cover band country here is what it is. Whether it's country, rock, jazz, well, not jazz, but anything you play, if you're going to play covers, people are going to show up. So, yeah, you know, that's pretty much the way it goes here. Yep, and Lynchburg. I'll say honestly, I think the, uh, that's the the way of the world for for the entire country. Uh, I, yeah. I think it's not just your area, but I mean. It seems that, you know, tribute bands seem to make a lot of money regardless of who they're tributing. Or, no offense to them at all, but like we're opening for a Metallica tribute band in May. (laughs) You know, so. But now I'll tell you, man, and they're playing Metallica. I'll tell you, though, uh, it is a promoter around this area that is really doing a lot, uh, Jonathan Sly. He puts on the Blue Ridge Rock Fest, and uh, oh, yeah. he just per- purchased uh, – it used to be formerly Phase 2. It's a nightclub in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, he's calling it – I think it's a ridge now, and he has uh, went in and purchased some land in between Chatham and Danville, Virginia, and is going to have a amphitheater that will seat 30,000 people, man, and uh, – he is really, really pushing some some good music coming through, man. Uh, you know, right now it's kind of at a stalemate, but I truly right. do believe it's it's coming back. It's coming back around. Yeah. Definitely, because thanks to uh, Jonathan's business, it used to be called Lynchburg Concerts. I'm not sure what he's calling it now, but uh, when he went before uh, with Phase Two, we were fortunate. Uh, he pretty much made this area a music destination. I mean, we got to open up for Jeff Tate. Gosh, Warrant, Puddle of Mud. I mean, pretty much we opened up for a lot of you know, kicks, a lot of great hard rock and metal shows at Phase 2, and we got to play the first few Blue Ridge Rock Festivals. And uh, hopefully once he gets us all going again, we'll be doing it again at the, you know, formerly Phase 2, now the Ridge. So he's helped out making this Central Virginia a musical destination. Because before, like Sean said, I mean, We've we've always written our own music. Every band I've been in, I've always had originals. But you have to play covers because it's crazy. You play an original show with the two or three other original bands. Each band might make you know a hundred or two hundred piece. I tell other bands this from out of state, and they're just, their minds are blown. I'll tell them that we'll play like a two or three hour cover show. And, you know, we play our originals as well, but we mix in covers. But we'll make anywhere from like you know, depending on the the size of the club anywhere from 600 to like two thousand dollars right you know, we've made up of that but you know and they're like you make thousands of dollars playing a show i'm like yeah but we're playing covers but we're not doing anything we don't like we'll play everything from like 80s metal like rap motley crew all the way up to like corn and slipknot stuff that fits our music you know and our fans like it and if someone's never seen us before the covers get them into it and they hear our stuff and they're like oh wow i dig that and then they'll check us out on spotify or Apple yeah. Music or YouTube or whatever. And, and, yeah, you know, it's always been that way around here. It's crazy. One one thing I'd like to say, you know, we do owe Jonathan a lot because in a two year span, uh, God, I'd say from two set twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen, 
we opened up for so many really cool bands, a lot of our favorite bands, Heroes and all. Um, he brought so many cool bands to Lynchburg that would not have come to Lynchburg if he had not gotten them. One of yeah. my favorite shows we opened up for was Steel Panther. Now, Steel, Steel Panther, Panther Lynchburg, Lynchburg is a very oh, yeah. religious city. So you can imagine Steel Panther coming in singing what they sing about, but those guys are really cool. They're spot on. They they are top notch musicians. But um, you know, I think that once shows start happening again, like I said, people don't come out, but everybody's been kind of depressed and not going to shows. I think they just want to go to any kind of show. So I'm hoping yeah. when things come back that they'll be ready to just come. And like what Andy said. We sprinkle in our originals, and it's really cool to see in Lynchburg. You look out in the crowd, and you'll see people singing our lyrics. That blows yeah. my yeah. mind because they'll hear it, or they'll catch us on Spotify, Pandora, or whatever, and, and they and actually also know the, uh, the freaking words. And also looking out in the crowd, man, and seeing the sea of LMV T-shirts out there, man, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it, it, when we open up when we open up for national acts, we play all original sets. <laughs> so we're not throwing any covers in yeah. there. So. Yeah. Man, I, I'll tell you what's what's great is you know we live in the time and era where it, it doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been together. You, you everybody seems to have an equal footing right now. You know, yeah. and a lot of people shit on the the Spotify or whatever YouTube. But I'm 45. Guys my age can still make it, and it, uh, that's one thing that I'm loving about this time and age. True, very yeah. true. I mean, yeah. you know, the days of riding around in a jet like White Snake and Zeppelin did—that's <laughs> over. That's done. Uh, but you nailed you nailed it on the head. I mean, guys can be—you know—I just turned 40. I'm the baby of the band. I just turned 40. But, you know, all of us combined, me and Chris, the bass player, added up the other day. We have like 150 years of experience of doing this shit. And, you know, but but older guys, it doesn't matter. You can stream your stuff. When people are streaming, listening to your music, they're not seeing your age. They don't care about that's that. Right. They're listening to the music. And that's what it's about. That's really ultimately what it is about. So the Internet, in a way, it kind of killed the uh, radio star, but it also kind of helped in a way. So you got to adapt to the changes, you know. You got to be like the Rolling Stones. You got to change and and roll with the punches if you want to make it in this. And you know, like I said, none of us expect to get rich off of this because that's not going to happen. We that's one reason this band is so good is we all do it because we love to do it. Because I learned a long time ago, like I said, when I turned to, when I toured the country with a black metal band. We made zero. We came out in the negative. I mean, we almost starved to death going from there to California. So if you don't do it for the love of doing it, you may as well just hang it up because, I that's mean, that's right. that's the main thing. So That's right. Well, guys, I want to thank you. Uh, how, do, how do fans get a hold of you guys as far as music, as far as social media pages, that kind of thing? Uh, they can check us out. I mean, we're, on, we're everywhere. Our Facebook, uh, pretty much everywhere is LNV Official. Um, if that doesn't work, just go on Facebook, LNV, Last Night's Villain, and then we've got links. But we're on uh, Spotify, YouTube. We're on every streaming service, Apple Music. Just look up LNV, Last Night's Villain. And uh, Yeah, we got a Pandora, Pandora yeah. page, man, Spotify, YouTube, everything, man. Yeah, Not we got to really think. We have our own official page, and then, of course, YouTube makes a page for bands that just where it just plays the audio 
which is cool. Right. Um, but then we've got our own official LND face uh, YouTube page that has the video for the poison and some live videos and uh, an acoustic video of Gary and I playing the poison on a podcast a few months ago. So yeah, yeah we're everywhere. Yeah, so much LND official or LND last night's villain. Make it pretty now, easy for uh, everyone. One more, one more time for that that next gig. What when's the date? Where are you guys playing? We are in Roanoke, Virginia at Dr. Pepper Park on Friday, May 14th, uh, supporting Battery, the nation's top Metallica tribute band. And then after that, we are in Lynchburg at the Clubhouse on Friday, June 4th. So those will be our first two shows in over a year, May 14th in Roanoke and June 4th in Lynchburg. And hopefully after that, a lot more shows to come. Yes, guys, thank you so much for being with us tonight, man. We're, We're... Getting ready to go ahead and play uh, the poison. You guys <laughs> told us to hold low down for that video, man. We're gonna, I know I'm going to be thinking about it the whole time it's playing. But uh, <laughs> anything that I can do, guys, anything you want to post to the Rock and Roll Union page, Andy, uh, rest of you guys, please keep keep us up to date. You know we've been we've been big time supporters of you guys from the very beginning, and now uh, we're really excited to see where you guys are heading now. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much, man. man. Yeah, we truly Thanks, appreciate guys. that, man. Thanks so much for having us on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. always, it's brother. Awesome. You guys have a great rest of your weekend. Yeah, you too, brother. You, you too, as well. Bro. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. All right, bye bye.
That was last night's villain with the poison, guys. I want to say a big shout-out and a thank you to David Roach from Junkyard, Jonathan Mover, and last night's villain for being with us tonight, guys. It was an amazing show here. Really, really excited and uh, thankful to you guys for listening in. Looking forward to next week's show. We have Chemical Straight Jacket and Genesis Z and the Black Mamas. So next week is an all-local show. And uh, until next time, guys, remember rock and roll. Have a good week. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 